I'm Farai Chidea, and this is Our Body Politic Extended Edition. I'm excited to share with you an extended version of our conversation from our show this week between guest host and NPR correspondent Cheryl Corley, plus Washington Post personal finance columnist and author Michelle Singletary. They cover all things personal finance, from how to pick a financial planner to how to deal with the fear that can come from managing your money. So let's dive in. Take it away, Cheryl. I'm NPR correspondent Cheryl Corley, sitting in for Farai Chidea. I'm talking financial planning with Washington Post personal finance columnist and author Michelle Singletary. Hi, Michelle. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. I'm so glad to be here again. We've been talking a lot on the show about home ownership and how crucial owning a home can be to build wealth, especially for Black families. How do you think home ownership fits into planning your personal finances, particularly when it comes to wealth? Think of wealth as sort of like a pie. And different slices of the pie create your wealth. So one part is real estate, perhaps your home that you live in. One part is retirement, non-retirement investing. I'm a big believer in that. We talk a lot about saving for college and retirement, but you should invest to, to buy your car or to do home improvements so that you don't have to borrow. When it comes to real estate, especially for African-Americans, we are so tied to real estate as the way to create wealth. It's only one part of that pie. And I like to look at home ownership this way. It's just where you live. Because how do you reach the equity in that house? There's really two ways. You sell take the profit, or you borrow against the equity, which means debt. And so when it comes to homes and whether or not you bequeath it to your heirs, you have to look at, are they going to live there? Has the house been kept up? And so we had this conversation with our daughter recently. We want to leave the house to one of you so one of you doesn't have to pay rent or have a mortgage because all three of them probably aren't going to live here as adults. And she looked at me and she's like, we're going to sell the house. And I'm just crying. What? You don't want my house. And she said, mommy, we're going to sell the house split it between the three of us and take that money and then we can buy our own homes and build our own wealth for our families. And I'm still feeling some kind of way. But then I thought, she's absolutely right. They can buy their own house and still build wealth. We're not pegging all of their wealth on this house that my husband and I own because it is only a benefit to them if they sell. And so it's okay to do that. And lots of black families hold on to family homes that nobody wants to live in because the kids are off in different cities, right? And so the houses become dilapidated and they don't have the money to fix it up to sell it. And people want to just hold on to it. But how do you get to that wealth if you don't sell it? And that's where the emotion comes in about money and housing. (laughs) That's exactly right. If there's someone who wants to live there and maybe they could buy out their siblings, then that makes sense. But if that's not the case, it's okay to sell that house and take that money as long as it's going to be invested in a way that the money can then grow either by buying another house or putting it in the market and that sort of sense. So we can't keep being tied to these properties that may not actually be producing the wealth that you want for your family. There is this huge discrepancy when it comes to the wealth gap among whites and people of color. 
with African-Americans being on the low end of that spectrum. What advice you have for people who may have no involvement at all with a financial planner, especially folks who think that financial planning is only for the wealthy? How do you talk about the racial wealth gap and how financial planning helps narrow it and why financial planning is just important for people of color? Yeah. So when I talk about the wealth gap, I really follow two tracks. The first track of policy changes, that's things that the individual doesn't have control over other than Mm. who they vote into office. Mm. And so there are various policies that need to be changed or procedures and things in the financial planning world, like more financial planners of color, um, making sure that redlining dies the death that it needs to die, that when Black homes are appraised, that they are appraised that at a value that is commiserate to other um, similar situated homes. So those are the kinds of things we have to work on and try to get laws changed or updated to ensure that there's a fair playing field. And so then the second track is the individual responsibility. So while you're waiting for policies to catch up, what can you do on an individual level? Mm -hmm. And you might be coming from behind. We know that um, African-Americans, minorities, women are still paid less, even when they have similar backgrounds and work history. We know that there's still issues with redlining and other things that help you build your wealth. We know that Blacks still don't invest in the stock market at the same rate. And oftentimes that's not because they don't want to, but you invest with extra money. But if you're still just getting by, there isn't any extra money. And Mm -hmm. so when I talk to individuals, I talk about the things that you can do, like doing your best to live below your means. Um, When it comes to your expenses, controlling them. So that might mean everybody can't have their own house. It could be that you live in a multi-generational home um, so that you can share the expenses of home ownership. And in Mm -hmm. fact, Pew Research looked at multi-generational households and found that one of the benefits is that um, they're less likely to live in poverty. When there is a job loss or some economic downturn, they're able to weather that storm more. So these are the kinds of things that you can do that will lead you to the point where you actually have the money to do advanced financial planning or work with a planner, like saving for retirement or having a non-retirement investment investment account, um, which I Mm -hmm. try to get people to do in addition to, you know, saving for retirement. So it's okay if grandma's still around and you don't kick your kid out when they're 21. Absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. Especially when so many young adults have student loan debt or they're just starting Mm -hmm. out like right now. All three of my 20 something year old children are living with my husband and I. But we as a family decided that they could save so much money by living at home. Fortunately, we have the space and we actually like each other. (laughs) (laughs) All of these are wealth building decisions so that once they launch, they'll stay launched, but they'll also have a nice uh, saving to invest to build their own wealth. Yeah. Michelle, A lot of people say, okay, I want to start saving or I want to learn how to invest. I I want to do a lot of things that I just have been too leery to handle myself. 
And I want a financial planner to help me navigate all of these things. So how can people find a financial advisor and what types of things should they really be looking for? So first thing is ask around. Recommendations is a great way to start. Um, I'm finding that more and more employers are providing financial planning as part of their benefit package. So you want to check and see if your employer um, has an option. Like if you're searching for a fee-only planner, which is a great way to find someone who's going to be working in your interests, you want to try the National Association of Personal Financial Advisors or NAPFA.org. And you can search for an advisor in your local area. Um, so those are sort of some of the ways. And you should get a couple of recommendations, find a couple of people, and then just interview them and see if they fit you. If they come with a pre-planned, you know, invest in this, do that, then, then that's probably probably not the person for you. You want to make sure that mm. they are um, looking at your financial situation, uh, measuring your risk tolerance, um, and that they are always acting in your best interest. So you want to find a fiduciary. That's the term you want to ask. Are you a fiduciary? Which means that they have to act in your best interest. Can you talk about whether or not it's important for people of color, Black people in particular, to have um, Black financial planners? I think that only about 2% of financial planners are actually Black. That number is way too low. <laughs> they're out there, but they're a little hard to find. Uh, certainly, we need more companies to hire people who look like the folks that they're going to represent. Sometimes there's certain cultural things that comes into play when you're doing financial planning. My husband and I have had several financial planners, but the one who changed our financial life was a black woman. Um, and she worked for a firm and she came through a recommendation. 20 years ago, we worked with her. And since then we've worked with other planners, but she gave us like a master plan. And I had kept all the materials from our planning sessions with her. There were multiple sessions. It was a big folder. And she gave us a list of things to do. Like one of the things she looked at our uh, retirement plan and we were both, my husband and I, way too conservative. And she said, no, 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 you've got to take more risk. And I'm like, no, I'm going to lose money. <laughs> she walked me through it, understanding that fear because culturally I was never taught about investing. My grandmother, big mama, was an amazing money manager. She could save that woman. If she held a penny, Lincoln would scream. She didn't trust the stock market. It was too risky for her. And yeah. you have to understand why. Her grandparents were enslaved individuals. And she saw things being done during, you know, Jim Crow and periods like that where the banking industry was not trustworthy when it came to being black. And so I like to joke that the only bond my grandmother had was the, the bond adhesive for her dentures. So she discouraged me from being in the stock market. But this financial planner, this black woman said, no, you've got to be in the market. Your money has to work for you. And she said, not only that, you need to set up uh, 529 college savings plans for your children. Um, she made sure we readjusted our retirement plans that, that they were at an appropriate uh, diversification for our age and our, you know, how long we were to retirement. So I went back and we followed all of her advice. 
And I text her every birthday and I tell her, thank you. My husband and I followed all of her advice. And because of that, Hmm. we sent all three of our children to college debt free. Because of working with that financial planner, our retirement plans are well situated for our retirement. She pushed us out of our comfort zone. That was the result of a history of our folks being discriminated against and denied things so that we were too scared to take the risk and to invest that would create wealth for our family. Because fear is a big thing, Uh, especially um, if you're an older adult who hasn't been, I guess, financially literate, right? So what about someone who is uh, older, past working age, not blessed with any transfer of wealth from parents or anything like that, hasn't saved much or paid little attention uh, to their work retirement account if they have one? Is it just too late for them? Uh, Do they just depend on Social Security or, or what exactly? I never like to say it's too late for people to be put themselves in a better position. Never. Because what is the alternative? And so if you wake up and you think, I didn't do all the things that they say I should do, or maybe I couldn't afford it, then you have to have honest conversation with yourself and you have a different retirement. Maybe you wanted to retire in your late 50s or early 60s, but you have to work a little longer if you can. Um, Multi-generational households that comes into play. Maybe you can't live on your own or you welcome your adult children back or you move in with them or you delay taking Social Security so you can build up that benefit. You know, we can take it at 62 Social Security, but as you every year you wait, the benefit increases. And after your full retirement age, it increases about 8% per year till 70 when it maxes out. Um, and so these are all kinds of strategies that you can use to make your money stretch. How do you encourage the spectrum and talk about young people who may be intimidated again by financial lingo, know nothing to little about stocks or bonds or mutual funds, just really aren't financially literate. How do you get them to overcome that fear and to to pay attention? Um, You just have to have a drumbeat of (laughs) this is what you have to look forward to. Now, listen, I'm not going to lie. This is a hard (laughs) argument for young adults, right? But trying to sell this idea that you put a significant amount of your money away for something that you're going to, you know, need, what is it, like five decades (laughs) from now is a hard sell. But if you invest now while you're young, you can be a millionaire by the time you retire. And you don't have to Mm -hmm. invest in speculative things like cryptocurrency or try to find the next Microsoft individual stock. Putting Mm -hmm. money in your 20s and 30s on a regular basis, it's called dollar cost averaging. So you select a certain amount of money you're going to put in on a regular basis, say every month, and you just put it in the market regularly and doesn't matter what the market's doing up or down. And over time, historically... The stock market returns a solid 8 to 10%. And so this that's a great way to grow your wealth. The sooner you start, the less you have to save every month, the more you'll have when it comes time to retire. Mm-hmm. You previously did this 10-part series called Sincerely Michelle that got really personal about misconceptions concerning race and inequality. 
And in one installment, you talked about the hidden bias in credit scores. And uh, there's such heavy emphasis placed on uh, good credit. Can you talk about what is good credit and some of the ways that racial bias is built into credit? So when we talk about good credit, we're really talking about the systems that score you based on how you use debt. And the most widely used is your FICO score. Mm -hmm. And your FICO score is derived by information in your credit report. So within your credit report is say you've got some credit cards, say you have a car loan, or maybe you've got a mortgage. All that information is fed into this database. FICO takes that information and applies it to different factors. So paying your bills on time and having debt, but not having a lot of debt increases your credit score and you have good credit. And the better your credit score, the lower cost of borrowing. And your credit score is only one part of the lending decision, right? They look at your income and some other things, but it's a huge factor. So the higher your credit score, typically the lower your borrowing costs. Now, what's happening with credit scores, the way it's baked in, is that it looks at debt that you've used. Well, if you're African-American in the U.S., we have only have home ownership of like maybe about 40%. And so we're less likely mm. to have a mortgage that feeds into that system. And so we're more likely to be mm. renting. Well, rents aren't calculated in the FICO scores. But if you're most likely to rent and mortgage is a big factor in the credit score, you can see why our scores might be lower. When people talk about money and, and how to handle it, there are so many uh, emotions yeah. that go into it. Um, you know, there's pride, of course. There's anxiety, a lot of anxiety when we talk about money uh, and worry. How does um, a financial planner um, help a person through that? No, the beauty of a financial planner is they can take a step back and look at the big picture. Uh, that's what happened with us when we looked at um, planners, because when you don't come from money and you save, you're so scared of putting any of that money at risk. And you don't understand that over time, putting that money in the market or diversifying it in a well-diversified portfolio can increase your wealth. And so the planner can say, listen, I understand that you're fearful of this, but let me show you what the market does historically. Let me show you how your money can work for you and can take some of the emotion out of it. Like when I was afraid mm -hmm. to be in the market and my husband and I were only invested in bonds, which are safer um, than stocks, um, our planner showed us the history and she said, what are you so scared of? And I, you know, told her, I don't want to lose my principal. And so she said, but look at your life. Like, we don't carry credit card debt from month to month. We are great savers. Um, we live below our means. And so she sort of walked through the other parts of our life where we are doing the right things. And so she said, you can afford to take risk on this side. And she listened, right? She listened. And I didn't initially do some of the things that she said, but she just kept talking to us and saying, 
Let me show you the way. Um, And I think that's what planners do. A good financial planner will hold your hand through some of these decisions. And she was absolutely right on so many points. I'm so grateful that we hired her and she was able to walk me through these fears that I had inherited from my grandmother. One of the things that always interests me is what many Black people participate in and people of color. Well, many people is the lottery, <laughs> right? <laughs> and trying to, or thinking that the way that you can get to financial wealth and to bridge the gap is to win the lottery, right? It can be very enticing. But what I wanted to ask you is, say a person does win the lottery or they have a big financial windfall. Uh, what should they do with that money? So, yeah, you know, that lottery thing, especially since, you know, we hype it up when the pocks get really big and people dream of hitting it big. Mm-hmm. But, you know, studies have looked at lottery winners and many of them end up broke after these huge pots. Because if you can't handle money well with a little bit, you're not going to handle it well with big pots, you know. Um, and so mm. the first thing I tell people when they get a windfall, and most of the time people aren't winning the lottery, but they might get a windfall because somebody has passed away and left them some money or they yeah. want a lawsuit. Maybe they pay too much taxes. They got a huge, you know, refund from the IRS. The first thing you do is pause. I know that sounds like kind of simple, but oftentimes you just need to take a step back and figure out, okay, I've got this windfall. What's the best use of this money? So I say spend a couple of months not doing anything so that you don't make a rash decision. And then you start with, okay, am I carrying debt? Do I have a savings uh, cushion? Um, And so you start to put your money in different areas to protect yourself. I like to tell people I'm a pot person, (laughs) but not that kind of pot, you know, pots of money, right? (laughs) And so you want to look at, do I have a good emergency fund? Do I have what I call a life happens fund? So that's a that's money that you put aside, like if your car breaks down um, and you want to put money in yeah. that. And then you start looking at making sure that you don't you're not carrying any debt. And then maybe you need to boost your retirement. So by the time you use that money for the different pots, you'll find that it isn't as much as you think it is. But if you put them in the different pots, you have now secured yourself financially. Don't <laughs> tell anybody because there'll be a lot of pressure for you to um, give to folks. Um, And while I'm a big believer in giving, um, you want to make sure that you secure yourself first, right? You know, you should be giving out of your abundance, not money that you need. We're in a really kind of tenuous time right now, global economics unstable with the war in Ukraine and here at home, the, uh, presidential races, gearing up, just a lot of things happening. World of events can really lead to market fluctuations. So what do you tell people uh, when they're looking at trying to plan for the next two to five years? I'm not going to say don't panic because that's just useless advice. We hear Dow is up, Dow is down, way down, Mm -hmm. and you panic. And rightfully so. Most folks 
you know, we have regular jobs, you know, regular income. There's not a lot of cushion. And so when people's like, don't panic, this is what the market does. You just want to slap them. (laughs) Of course, I'm going to panic. I panic. It's like, ah! So I said, go ahead and scream. But then don't act on that panic. And you really can't look at how the market is operating on a day-to-day or week-to-week or even month-to-month period. Um, The market does what it does, which is up and down sideways. But if you're a long-term investor, which most people should be, those who are saving to send their kids to college. So if you start when the kid is a little person, that's 20 years. Most people are trying to save for retirement. If you start in your 20s and 30s, that's like 40 years, right? Mm -hmm. And so that's a long time. And we know historically over time, and I have to say that because past performance is not indicative future results. But we know the way the market has performed for decades is that over time, you get a positive return that um, keeps pace with inflation and then some. And so if you know that, then you don't make decisions based on what's happening this week or this day in the stock market. When the market is very volatile, just don't look at your retirement account. Don't panic. Words of wisdom. Michelle, it's always such a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much. You're so welcome. And that was Our Body Politics guest host, NPR correspondent Cheryl Corley, plus Washington Post personal finance columnist and author Michelle Singletary. This was your Our Body Politic extended edition. I'm Farai Chidea. Thank you.